0: We are um, continuing this morning with what has been a a, really an extended study of the Book of Romans for quite some time now. I'm I'm not even sure exactly how long it's been. I'll have to check that out, but uh, well over a year, I can say that. But uh, we are actually in the uh, final, the home stretch of this letter, where Paul is uh, making a number of applications of the truths that he has spent so much time explaining especially in those early chapters of this letter. In particular, we have seen most recently and in this this final section how uh, some of the various ways that the gospel uh, revolutionizes or changes or transforms all of our relationships. It changes the way that we relate to one another in general as believers. It changes the way that we relate to our enemies. It changes the way that we think about and relate to civil authorities, to governing authorities. And it changes the way, in particular, uh, the way that we deal with Christians with whom we may disagree on some disputable matters. Um, last week we actually been looking at that last part that's an extended section here at the end of, of Romans. And uh, we're going to pick that up again this week, that, that whole matter of Christians and disputable issues. And as we looked at that last week, though, some of the, just to remind you, some of the preliminary conclusions we came to about that. uh, One was that not every issue, not every issue is a disputable issue. Issues that relate to the integrity of the gospel message are not disputable issues. But many things are. And for some of you here this morning, there are probably more disputable matters than you would care to admit And then for others of you this morning, there are probably less or fewer. Secondly, we saw that when it comes to disputable issues, uh, more important than the view that you hold is actually the manner in which you hold that view. The way that you hold that view and the way that you deal with that with your brothers and sisters. Thirdly, while we are free to reject a disputable view, we don't have to adopt the same view on something, we are never free to reject the person who holds the view. Rather we are to accept and welcome them and they are to accept and welcome us without conditions and the reasons we do that are several. We do that because God has welcomed them, we do that because Jesus died for them and we didn't and therefore he is their master and we aren't. We do it because they are actually family. And we do it because on the judgment day, we will not be talking about anybody else's issues except our own. Fourthly, we talked about the fact that the persons on both sides of the issue, whatever the issue is, are to be working hard to be sure themselves that what they believe is not sinful and it is honoring to God. And fifthly and finally, we have to recognize this truth, that people can be on sort of opposite poles of a disputable issue, but they can have the exact same motive of wanting to honor God with their view. And that means we need to believe the best about each other, especially when we disagree, and to respect that motive in the other person until or unless we are given strong reason to believe that there's some other motive going on. And the section before us this morning, Paul is building on what he's already said, those things there. And he's kind of moving on from how we should regard one another to actually how we should behave toward one another. In particular, Paul has in view here what he calls the, the strong Christians. And he's addressing the strong Christian very directly in this passage. We'll, we'll say what that is again in a moment. And it's uh, specifically talking to them about how they act toward what he refers to in this passage as a weaker brother or sister in the Lord, or weaker Christians. That's where we're headed. That's what we're looking at. Uh, please pray with me, though, before we go any further. Please pray with me. Great Father in heaven, um, Help us now to understand and precisely, uh, uh, you know, what it is that you are saying in these verses, uh, to be clear on that, and help us to understand how these things apply, um, what we are meant to do with the things that we hear you saying this morning. I believe it was... Michelangelo, who when asked on one occasion, Father, what he was sculpting, he responded by saying he was trying to liberate the angel that was being held captive within the stone. Father, would you please now, as the human sculptor that you are, use these truths like a chisel to do that very same sort of thing with us. Would you chisel away all those things in us that do not at all resemble the Lord Jesus Christ and leave us looking a little more like him than we did when we first walked in here this morning. We recognize that only you can do that sort of artwork, but you have promised to do it. So would you please restore your image, fallen and marred though it may be within us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Right, well let's listen now to the verses before us this morning. And as you listen, please remember what these verses are. These words that I read to you from Scripture, they are inspired. They're God-breathed out words for His people. And that means they're completely and utterly reliable. You can stake your life on the things that I'm about to read to you. Absolutely stake your life on it. To be sure, my explanations of what we read are always fallible, they're always flawed, and you always need to measure what I'm saying against the scriptures every single time. And if I get it wrong, reject what I'm saying and hang on to the scriptures. That's your responsibility every week. But these words I'm about to read to you are flawless and they're priceless and they're for God's people in every age. So listen now to God's Word. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have... Keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he appro- approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For what, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not In accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. As I noted in the introduction, the previous 12 verses leading right up to this section, uh, Paul was dealing in those verses with our attitudes toward fellow believers with whom we might disagree on some disputable matters. The section just read to you, Paul moves from attitudes to actions, talking about this in both positive and negative terms. And again, he seems concerned for the most part to really directly address what he's terming the strong believers, strong Christians in particular. That is, those believers whose consciences do not bother them on some disputable matter, such as issues regarding food and drink, which seem to be the particular thing in view here. For the strong Christian, the language of Paul, it doesn't mean superior, he just means stronger in their conviction, is the one he has whose conscience is not troubled over those sorts of issues. And so, after summarizing in verse 13 his instructions to the weak and the strong from the previous section with that one little phrase, let us not pass judgment on one, one another, after that he moves on to new territory, addressing the strong Christians negatively, warning them not to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother or sister. Now, what precisely does Paul mean by that? And what is a stumbling block in Paul's view? Briefly put, well, I'll unpack this a little bit, but a stumbling block is any behavior or speech or urging that results in a believer, another believer in some way going against his or her conscience on a particular matter. Okay, it's, it's any behavior, speech, or urging that results in a, another believer in some way going against his or her conscience on a particular matter. To use an example from last week, um, we, we talked about, if you remember, with the coming of Christ, a lot of things changed for God's people. One of those things had to do with some of the dietary restrictions that were in place during the Old Testament era, but which had been rendered no longer applicable with the inauguration of the New Covenant era through Christ. One particular type of dietary restriction, for example, was in the area of meat. Certain kinds of meat in the Old Testament era were considered kosher or clean, and certain kinds were not, partially because of what type of meat it was and also because of how it was slaughtered or prepared. And there were other laws, but all we talked about how all of those particular laws, as we saw last week, were applicable for a certain limited period of time. And what these civil laws, as they're called, what they did was distinguish God's people from the nations all around them in cultural ways, in societal ways, and they served as a reminder through the daily observance of these things that as God's people they were not only to be ritually and culturally distinctive, but they were to be, even more importantly, they were to be morally distinctive. So all these little place markers in their life about how they were to live and and engage in this and not engage in that were to remind them that they were to be distinctive people in all sorts of ways, but especially morally distinctive people. At any rate, all of those dietary restrictions, right, all of that went away with the coming of Christ and the inauguration of His kingdom and the expansion of the gospel to the nations outside the bounds of ethnic Israel. So... What that meant was, there's now freedom in areas where once there were restrictions. There's now freedom for God's people in areas where there were once restrictions. Jesus signaled these changes by things he says in Mark 7. And we see it as well in Acts chapter 10, where Peter, maybe you remember, has this vision... Which essentially declares as clean and acceptable all these kinds of food and animals that previously had been off limits. So carry that reality. I'm getting to the example now. Carry that reality into the early church. So here's the early church. Many Christians coming into the church from a Gentile, non-Jewish background had no issues whatsoever with eating different kinds of meat. Coming in beside them are these Gentile, I mean, these uh, Jewish Christians' uh, from a the Hebrew background, some of whom were a little slow in understanding and embracing and accepting the changes that the coming of Christ brought about in lots of areas, including including this area of diet and restrictions there. So imagine a scenario like this. Um, a Gentile Christian family invites one of the Jewish Christian families over to their home for a meal. And after they sit down together, the host brings out this lovely piece of pork. And the father of this Jewish Christian family who has never touched pork in his life never hesitates. He's not sure what he should do. He's he's a new believer. There's a lot yet to learn. He doesn't understand the full implications of the gospel in every area of his life. He has been assured by other Christians that there are no dietary restrictions for God's people. He's heard about the practice of some of the apostles. Perhaps he's heard about the vision that Peter had, declaring all foods clean. All that may have happened, but it's still all very new to him. He still has some questions. He still has doubts. And the Gentile Christian host, seeing that his friend is struggling then proceeds to explain and argue and press home his convictions about all foods being clean and acceptable. And the Jewish Christian listens and he responds and they debate this matter. And in the end, the Jewish Christian is not fully persuaded by his Gentile Christian friend. However, because he doesn't want to offend, because he feels a little pressured, because His friend seems so confident in what he's saying, he decides to go ahead and eat. Even though in his heart he has doubts, even though as he eats he's a little fearful that he might still be sinning against God in doing so. That situation, says Paul is the kind that ought not be happening. The strong Christian, that is, the one with a settled conscience on this issue, and not even with horrible intentions, not even with bad intentions, but the strong Christian has nevertheless, by his arguing and pushing and persuasion, an example he has put a stumbling block in the path of his weaker brother. His actions have resulted in another Christian doing something... Not out of conviction and not with confident faith, but out of a desire to conform or a desire to imitate or a desire to not rock the boat, something like that. So, again, what is a stumbling block? In Paul's view, a stumbling block is any behavior or speech or urging that results in a believer in some way going against his or her conscience on some matter. Now, please notice. Please notice, the issue is not that the strong believer has a different opinion than his weaker brother on some matter. Having a different opinion is not the same thing as being a stumbling block. Indeed, even having a different practice is not necessarily to be a stumbling block. The stumbling that is spoken of takes place when the strong Christian By asserting their liberty and promoting their views, lead weaker Christians into imitative behavior, even though they might still feel the behavior is wrong or that it may be wrong. And it's right there at that point that's where the stumbling happens. So, what's wrong about all this? Why is this such a big deal? Paul actually gives a number of reasons why. One of the fundamental reasons it's wrong is this. Urging or pushing a brother or sister to engage in anything that they fear is wrong or they're uneasy or unsure about, pushing a brother or sister in that way is a terrible thing to do. Because at its heart, you are encouraging a believer to adopt a pattern of ignoring their conscience. It encourages them to act not from conviction, but for some other reason. Because a voice or example outside their head is urging them to do so, which is crazy when you think about it. Because isn't that essentially, essentially what happened in the garden with the serpent and Eve? Urging a person to act from a position of doubt and not faith is sin, both for the one urging and for the one practicing. Paul writes in verse 22 to 23, Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not for faith. Whatever it is not perceived from faith is sin. So again, one of the primary reasons the stronger Christian ought not use their liberty to try and push or persuade weaker Christians on a particular matter is because in so doing, the strong Christian is encouraging a pattern of behavior that if the weaker Christian continues in, will destroy the believer and will shipwreck their faith because it encourages them to ignore their conscience. Additionally, pushing one's convictions upon another believer in a disputable area, thus causing them to act with an uncertain conscience, is wrong because it's just it's not loving. It's selfish. It's the assertion of one's personal rights, one's liberty, at the expense of another person's well-being. Again, listen to what Paul says, verses 14 to 16. I know, he says. I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it, but it is unclean, he says, for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. You see, for Paul, the issue here, issue is not... About who's correct about this matter. It's not who's right. Technically speaking, and particularly this matter of dietary restrictions, Paul knows that all foods are clean. There's nothing about the foods themselves that makes them acceptable or not acceptable. Paul knows he's got liberty here as a believer to partake of all sorts of things. But again, the issue is not about who's correct. It's not about the assertion and protection of one's rights. The issue is that although a certain food may be actually and technically clean and totally acceptable in itself, not every Christian is on the same page regarding these things. That's the issue. For some Christian brothers and sisters, they aren't there yet in their understanding and in their expression of their freedom in Christ. And so for them... Paul says the food in question, to use the example here, the food in question, while actually perfectly fine, is nevertheless functionally unclean. And their partaking of it, that is the weaker Christians partaking of such things, under those conditions would be sinful. And again, it would be sinful, not because of the food itself, but because they regard it as off limits, and yet they partake Anyway, And in doing this, they exhibit the attitude that says, I don't care what God says. I don't care what God says. I want what I want. Correspondingly, a strong believer who has no qualms about any sort of food or drink and who therefore feels quite justified in partaking of certain things, while he is entirely within his rights, technically speaking, to partake... If he does so, knowing that his actions will or may lead to another believer going against their conscience, formed or unformed, then such an action is not right at all for the strong believer. In fact, it's unloving and it's destructive and it's sinful for the strong believer to forge ahead in those circumstances, says Paul. One further problem with all this is that insisting upon one's rights... At the expense of a brother or sister in the Lord will result in that which is good. Namely, what I think he means, the good thing is this, the free exercise of Christian liberty. It's going to result in that good thing being slandered and maligned and criticized as a bad thing. I think that's what Paul's referring to in verse 16 when he says, So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. And so, negatively, Paul says, Don't put a stumbling block in the path of your brother or sister, And he provides a number of reasons why doing so is a terrible thing. More positively, Paul says that when it comes to our brothers and sisters in the Lord, the thing we ought to be concerned with is not clinging to our rights, but rather with having a willingness to do whatever it is to build up our brothers and sisters. A willingness to abandon our freedoms... When necessary, especially if doing so means our brothers and sisters will be encouraged and strengthened in their faith and not torn down. Hear Paul's words again, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not, it is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. So the positive thing that Paul wants his brothers and sisters to do is pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. He wants them to be all about encouraging and strengthening one another and not tearing one another down. He gives at least two strong reasons for doing so in this passage. The first one comes from something Paul says in Romans 15.3. He says, For Christ did not please himself. As it is written, Reproaches of those you reproached fell on me. The strongest reason Paul gives for being committed to building one another up, the strongest example he can provide for doing that, even at great personal cost, is that of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus took on the reproaches. He took on the sin and the penalty for that sin for all those for whom he died. He disadvantaged himself to make advantage for his people. He abdicated his rights for the sake of his weak and helpless people. See, one of the tragedies of this situation where the stronger Christians might bring about the stumbling of a weaker brother was that ultimately what that does is trivialize and devalue the work of Jesus on the cross. When the strong believer refuses to let go of his privileges for the sake of another, he is saying, in essence... Jesus may have given up his life for my brother's sake, but I'm willing to risk bringing about his or her downfall because I'm not willing to give up a far less significant thing for them. Jesus is willing to give up his life. I'm not willing to give up this lesser thing. Paul's warning against that strong. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. We do that. He's not saying just, you're going to just annoy them. He's saying you can do serious damage. Now, you may be sitting there as a strong Christian on some issue, thinking to yourself, why should I have to give up my freedom just because my brother or sister in Christ doesn't get it? And therein lies your bondage. Knox Stanley put it this way, the most insidious form of bondage is when we are in bondage to our own freedom. A freedom that you can't let go of or won't let go of for the sake of another's good, guess what? That's no longer freedom, is it? Because in the very moment that you harbor that attitude, you are enslaved to the exercise of your freedom. How crazy is that? The strongest reason we ought to be committed to the building up of a brother or sister, including being willing to abdicate our own rights and freedoms at times, is because in doing so, we are imitating and valuing the work of Christ, who did the very same sort of thing, only on a far more significant level. The other motivation for being committed to building up, even at great personal costs, Is seen, I think, in verses 5 to 7. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So, Paul's hope and prayer for the Romans is that they will live in such harmony with one another. That their life to be together will be one of mutual building up such that they will be able, they actually will be able to praise God with one voice. With a unity and a love and a camaraderie that is born of all that they've known together. that is born of all of their mutual upbuilding, all of their sacrifices for one another. Paul's hope is that they'll be able to share in the praise of God, that when they look to their left and they see that believer there, and they look to their right and they see that believer there, they aren't thinking about resentment or bitterness or long-held grudges between weak and strong Christians, but actually they just see somebody that they love, love, love. And there'll be a deep and genuine gratitude for one another and and. Easy and quick acknowledgement that the kingdom of God really isn't about eating and drinking. But it's about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's about all those things that we know vertically through Christ, right? Righteousness, peace, and joy. All of those things uh, turned horizontally, as Piper says, and experienced amongst one another in the body of Christ. Righteousness, peace, and joy. Some bullet points as we close. The matter of view here is about not being a stumbling block to a brother or sister. Secondly, the strong Christian, hear me on this, the strong Christian is not to be held hostage by the different opinion of a weaker brother or sister on some issue. The brother or sister with a different view but not at all tempted to go against their conscience. That's not the situation here. Both strong and weak Christians are not to judge each other on these matters. Strong and weak Christians may even discuss and debate these matters. However, the burden of responsibility, it seems to me, from what Paul is saying, is on the strong Christian to be very careful in doing so. So if there's any danger or thought that asserting one's freedom in some area, either by talking about it or modeling it, but if there's any danger that the assertion of that freedom is going to lead to another believer uh, practicing that for which he does not possess the inward liberty, as Cranville puts it, then the strong Christian ought to gladly in those situations and willingly forego his rights and privileges because it's not worth it putting at risk a brother or sister in the Lord and because it would be in fact be an imitation of Christ himself and a way of giving glory back to him. Even something that is legitimate in itself can be illegitimate if it's not partaking in faith and with conviction. Because to be in the practice of a going against one's conscience is dangerous and spiritually perilous. Likewise, even a practice that can legitimately be entered into can, in some situations, be sinful if its effect is to bring about the stumbling of a brother or sister in the Lord. So be careful and be warned and keep your eye on the bigger picture, not what the kingdom of God ultimately is all about, and it's not about you and me exercising our rights and claiming our privileges. It is about reveling in the mercies of God in the company of the redeemed with whom we are at peace. Let's pray. Father, help us to hear these things as you would have us hear them. To apply them in ways that are not judgmental, that are loving, that are keeping in view your kingdom. Help us to be discerning, to care more about the well-being of our brothers and sisters than we do about claiming our rights. Help us to be patient and kind with one another when we have to forgive one another for the ways that we have sinned and offended each other in these areas sometimes. Help us to be quick to do that. To be thankful that we can do that and we know that we can have forgiveness because of the cross. We know, Father, that you are working on us and in us. You're bringing us to the same place. We will experience the righteousness and peace and joy uh, that we have with you, but also experience it horizontally with one another, uh, brothers and sisters in the Lord, uh, both now and forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We now I'll take up uh, an offering for those who want to support the work of this church. I'll make this plug again. In the foyer when you walk in, there's a... Television monitor that every week shows a different set of individuals or missionaries or agencies that we support as a church. So, if you want to know where some of this fund- funding goes to help out with these different missions, take a minute to watch the screen there uh, over a number of weeks and you'll see some of these people. <laughs>